It's none of your business. It's against the Constitution. It's against the Tenth Amendment. It's against the letter and the spirit. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. Um, I'm on the road this week, and guess where I am? I am in the swamp in Washington, D.C. So it feels like an appropriate moment to talk about what has been going on here this week, which is not a lot, frankly. Um, I was in New York earlier. Uh, you may have seen me on some of the Fox shows there. And now I'm here in Washington. I mean, this place, it's just a total joke, isn't it? Look what's been going on. The Congress is a total shambles. They seem unable to get anything done. Um, seems like it's both parties, both chambers. It's all just an absolute shambles. They can't get it together. Obviously, the focus was the border bill. Um, and we'll be talking a little bit more uh, in, in a little bit more detail about the actual policy aspects of the immigration crisis and the border crisis. But just in terms of the, the basic kind of expectations that we have of competence in Washington, I mean, it's just gone. I mean, it's just a complete joke. And then you look at how this place, you know, we, we call it a swamp. I mean, of course, it's literally was a swamp before the city was built. But the reason that name is so is, is so appropriate is the total corruption. I mean, everywhere you go, people, the way they talk here, it's not about what's right or how, you know, how, what, what's the best thing to do and how we can help the country. The entire thing is who's paying who, which lobbyists are being listened to, what are the interests pushing forward this particular agenda or that particular agenda. And, and it's so insular. That's the strong sense you get from being here. It's so incredibly self-regarding and inward-looking and narcissistic. They think they run the world. They think this is the only place that matters. Their, their kind of discussions and shenanigans are just, you know, much more important than anything else. And if you put all that together, you put together the utter failure of the Congress. And, you know, regardless of which party you're on, uh, which which side of the political fence you're on, if you're an independent Democrat Republican, doesn't matter. You just look at what's been going on. It seems to get more and more dysfunctional with all the politicians there just playing to the gallery, um, trying to score points, um, these sort of stupid tactics, childish things that go on there, the way they behave. It seems it's all for clicks and raising money and all the rest of it. And none of it is about actually doing things to help us. We're in this situation where we're all so proud of our country, so proud to be American and so ashamed of our government. And that is terrible. That is a terrible uh, situation to be in. And it, it seems to be getting worse, not better. Now, given that it's very obvious that Washington doesn't work, that Congress is a shambles, Washington is a swamp, well, then at least we can do this, which is to actually honor the Tenth Amendment of our Constitution, which states very clearly that the powers not specifically reserved in the Constitution to the federal government are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. And over the years, the last few decades, actually, maybe even the last century, that idea of decentralizing power, that power should mainly be in the hands of the states and not in the hands of the federal government, unless it's absolutely necessary, has been completely broken. And on issue after issue, it's so obvious that they would be better handled at the state level or even the local level, not by the federal government in Washington, so distant from what the needs of people are. And actually part of the reason we got such a problem and it is so dysfunctional is that actually 
um, the, the tree doesn't see things in the same way. You go to different states, people have different views on things. And so when you try and have a kind of national policymaking on any of these um, often very contested and controversial issues, then no one can agree. So that's driving a lot of the dysfunction. And in a way, the founders of our great nation predicted that. That's why you have the constitution as it is. That's why the whole idea that underpins the constitution is the decentralization of power in all sorts of different ways, but particularly now when we talk about the 10th Amendment, decentralizing downwards from the federal government to the states and to the people. And at that level, it's easier to come to agreement. You know, when you're talking about practical things in your community or your city or county or state even, just easier to come to an agreement than they obviously uh, can in, in the, at, at, the, at the federal level. And that's why it's such a mess. And that's why actually what we can take from the shambles is look, you guys, you're clearly not up to the job in Washington. You don't know what you're doing. You're not able to govern effectively. And by the way, it's not just the Republicans. You know, it's no good with the Democrats either. And so it's the it's the centralization of power. Washington trying to do more and more and more, take more and more control over individual policy areas, spend more and more of our money with no accountability. That's the central problem. And so one specific answer to it is to stop getting involved in so many things at the federal government. Washington, stop getting involved in all these policy areas that should be dealt with at the state level or the local level. It's none of your business. It's against the Constitution. It's against the Tenth Amendment. It's against the letter and the spirit of the Constitution. So stop it. Please stop meddling in things which are none of your business. And if you stop it, and if you decentralize power and transfer the powers that rightly belong in the hands of the states or the people, then perhaps then Washington won't be so much of a swamp and Congress won't be so much of a shambles. Okay, so for the policy conversation today, I did want to pick up on an aspect of the shambles that we just talked about, uh, which is of course, immigration, migration, the border crisis. I mean, one of the shambolic things that happened this week was, of course, this border bill, this giant bill that was uh, put out there. They've been negotiating this bill for months, I think since last October. Um, and then they put it out there on Sunday night and almost immediately, uh, this one after the senators put it out there on the House side, they said it's dead on arrival and we're not going to negotiate and forget about it. And look, I don't want to get into every single minute detail of this border bill um, because it's, it's it is big and there's a lot in it. There's a lot of good things in it. There's no question about that. It's silly to pretend that this bill is all good or all bad. It's I mean, it's a compromise and therefore it's got things that some people like and things that other people don't like. Um, certainly the reforms to the asylum process are long overdue. Um, and that's a good thing. But honestly, some of the kind of basic political malpractice and incompetence that went into this is just ridiculous. I mean, the first thing I just want to note that I think is 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 so offensive to a lot of people, it's been obvious that we have this border crisis. It's been going on actually for decades. It was a big part of why Donald Trump was elected in 2016, and he did do a lot to try and deal with it. I mean, he tried incredibly hard. He was frustrated in lots of ways. It wasn't just build the wall. There were many, many different reforms and many different actions that he took, including the big one, which was remain in Mexico, which was the threat of tariffs on the Mexican government if they didn't stop the migrant flow at their southern border. That was a really big success. 
as well as the uh, the idea that you process people's asylum claims in Mexico rather than once they've entered the US. So there's a lot of good things that happened, all of it undone almost overnight by the Biden administration. You know, to be fair, that's what they promised to do. Biden said in one of the debates, I want to see a surge at the border. Those are his words. And he got one. And and the message went out that it's now, you know, a green light to come into America. And boy, did people come. And so it's obvious for years now we've had this crisis. And you know what's so upsetting to people, I think, from a policy perspective, is that there was no action taken by the Congress on this for all those years. So, and by the way, including from Republicans, it's not as if the Republicans were trying to put together some kind of bill. I mean, the House passed a bill, HR2, which dealt with a lot of these issues on the Senate side, the senators who are now sort of, you know, bragging about them, you know, how brilliantly they've uh, tried to take on this issue. And it was the House that wouldn't proceed with their amazing bill. Well, where were these senators for the last three years? The shameful thing about this policy, um, uh, catastrophe really, which is what it is, is that they did nothing about the border from a policy perspective in the Senate until it was linked to Ukraine. That's what prompted the negotiations. That's what started it. When 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 the House side said, look, we're not going to vote for anything. You know, the, Biden wants more money for Ukraine. So does Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And, you know, I don't have an argument about Ukraine. As you know, I've always supported the idea that we need to help Ukraine defend itself against uh, Russian invasion. We, you can't have a, a world where dictators just walk into other people's countries. Europe should be doing most of the work there, not America. Um, I've made my position clear on that many, many times. But regardless of uh, what you think about Ukraine, the idea that the Congress doesn't start dealing with the border crisis until there's the threat of withholding money for Ukraine is so offensive to people because it really does suggest that they care more about Ukraine than about our border. I mean, how, how else do you explain that? They do nothing for three years and then suddenly they're desperate for more money for Ukraine. They said, okay, fine, then we'll do the border. It's really offensive. And then the other thing that is just so stupid, just on its face, a terrible tactic, if you like, is if you look at the border bill and you look at the money that they're spending, there's three times as much money going to Ukraine as they're planning to spend on the southern border. I mean, look, these people are not shy about spending money in Washington. I mean, they're, they're constantly throwing money around. So could they just on the sort of basic kind of political level just say, look, I think if we're going to sell this bill to the American people, we should at least have more money for our border than we're sending to Ukraine. But oh, no. Three times as much money. Was it 60 billion for Ukraine, about 20 billion for the border? Absolutely ridiculous. And then the final point that I want to make in, in, the, in the context of all this is that so much of this is actually driven by what happens at the states. Again, it's, it's following on from what we've been, just been talking about in terms of decentralizing power. Of course, just because you decentralize power doesn't mean it's going to be exercised well at the state or local level. And so what you're actually seeing are a lot of pull factors, as they're known in the policy world pulling people in that are state policy or local policy. And you saw that in a terrible way this week in New York City, where you had that awful incident of the migrants who should never have been here in the first place, assaulting police officers and then just getting away with it, just being released immediately. And then, and then to add insult to injury, the story of these credit cards that are being given out by New York 
to migrants, again, who should never even be here, um, because they don't like the food that they've been given. I mean, it's just so insulting. And then you look at here in California with the extension of full free health care to people who actually have broken the law to get here. And, and, you know, we've been through this argument. Of course, it's true that you don't want people to um, suffer and die from ill health in, 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 the, in a country as rich as ours. Of course, that's all true. People should have, should have health care. That is exactly right. But it's such an insult to give free unlimited health care to people who are here illegally, who don't work and all the rest of it, when you have hardworking Californians, to take the example of, 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 of California, hardworking Californians who complain the whole time that since Obamacare, they, their, their deductibles have gone up massively, their premiums have gone up. I've literally been speaking to people who say, I actually, my kid is sick, but I can't now, since Obamacare, that I can't take the kid to the doctor because it's just not, you know, the deductible's so high and I can't afford it. That's, that's American citizens who work incredibly hard, who actually are, are, are rationing their own health care because of the Obamacare reforms. Meanwhile, people who are illegal immigrants who shouldn't be here, broken the law to get here, getting free health care. It's an absolute insult to hardworking people across the country. So you've got to deal with that as well. Um, I don't know if they're going to get any kind of policy action together on the border. It looks like they won't. But that whole issue is very complicated. And actually, I think that if you look at it from the state level, there are things that you can do at the state level, both border states doing more as Texas is trying to do to stop the flow and states reducing the incentives that bring people here in the first place. All right, joining us today for California Corner, it's our friend Katie Grimes. Katie, if you don't already know, and you should, and if you're a regular listener, you will know, um, is the, do I, do I say editor of California Globe? Is that yeah. right? Exactly. So you're in, you basically uh, run California Globe, let me put it like that, and publish so much great information about what is going on in our state. California Globe, an absolutely essential uh, source of information, particularly when we have such a ridiculously biased media in California. So I find it invaluable. I read it every day. I see all your alerts and I follow you on Twitter and all the rest of it. So Katie, welcome. Um, what are we, what are we looking at? I, I, I want to talk to you about something that's actually, you know, that so often in California, we complain the whole time and, and there's a lot to complain about, obviously, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's some good news, right? Which is the proposition, the ballot initiative, which I, I really wasn't following the ballot initiative to overturn Prop 47 which is, of course, at the heart of so much of the chaos we're seeing in our cities, in particular with the robberies and crime and so on. Um, I wasn't really aware of it. And then suddenly, I was aware that people were trying to do it. And then suddenly I'm seeing you and Kevin Kiley and people putting out, we've got 200,000 signatures. Now we've got 300,000 signatures. It's looking really good. It really is. Um, and the beauty of this is it's kind of a, a, a great grassroots effort. There's a ton of average citizens who are working on it. And of course, the state's district attorneys, maybe minus George Gascon in L.A., <laughs> are working to overturn this initiative. And so, um, you know, this is Prop 47, which I have said California voters were just tragically misled uh, into voting for with the the title being the, the Safe Streets and Schools Act. Woo, it's for the children, except it was really for the criminals. And yes. we've seen this uptick, a horrific uptick in crime ever since 2014 when it was passed. And um, I think it also really led to 
all this homelessness on the streets also. Prop 57, I think, was the one that actually uh, altered the parole situation. So, yes, that did impact some some being let out early. Um, but, yeah, our governor just single handedly through an executive order has let over 76,000 uh, prison inmates out on the street. And that wasn't even co I mean, that was pre-COVID, wasn't it? Then you had COVID in on top of that. They, 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 yeah, they were it saying had all, yeah, yeah. all factored into the perfect storm to give us this unbelievable serial retail theft problem that we have. And, you know, we've watched San Francisco close down Targets and Walgreens and Rite Aids and CVS pharmacies, plus, you know, all the boutique stores that have closed down, um, you know, just it's unbelievable. These it major unbelievable. It's such chaos. And you go in the stores and everything's locked up and, you know, behind these plastic things. It's just ridiculous. And, and that's all over the state. I walked into a Walmart in Amador County not long ago, and the socks and underwear for men were locked up. It's just so it's bad. bad. Yeah, there's not that much crime in Amador County. So, um, yeah, so this thing, th this is imperative. And so what this particular ballot initiative would do is it would allow um, felony charges for possessing certain drugs, of course, fentanyl is a huge part of this, and thefts for under $950, which is the cap on theft, um, to be kind of flipped on its head. It increases the sentences for all of these for specific drug and theft crimes and increases um, prison sentences, which, um, which a lot of people will say is actually going to reduce a lot of savings and help fund mental health programs again. So it's kind of a win-win a in the state. And so this is something that, I mean, I know Kevin tried to get this through the when he was in the legislature yeah. before he went to Congress. He, he tried did. to push this through, I think. And now you've got, do you know who actually started this ballot initiative? Where did it get, where did it get going? Was it one of the DAs? I think it is one of the, a couple of the DAs. I think uh, attorney, um, District Attorney Jeff Reisig in Yolo County has been a huge part of it. Um, I believe uh, Sutter County also. Um, I know that, but they're all on it at this point. And so I think it's really good when the when it, when you see that the district attorneys are behind yes. this because they're the ones on the front line of the prosecutions and they can tell you how their hands have been totally tied exactly by by this ridiculous change of laws. And so the, the just in terms of the practicalities, um, what is it? They need about half a million signatures in the next yeah, couple of it's, months? Yeah, it's 500,000 plus. I know they're over 300,000 in gathering and they think they've got until mid to late April to gather these signatures. So it looks very, very good. And, and I've been contacted by so many people that have read our articles on this, looking for places to sign the petition. So um, I know that there's going to be more information coming out about, you know, places to sign throughout the state. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, just to remind everyone, I'm sure um, uh, people are familiar, but just as a double check that actually all these things you have to sign in person on a piece of paper. Yes. It can't be online. You have to do it physically. Um, exactly. He's looking really encouraging, and I think it's it's another example of why I have hope for California, despite all the you know craziness that we see from the political system here. Is that we you know I, I make this point the whole time, and I travel around the state speaking to or, or, you know organizations and groups and so on. I say, look, in the end, there's no substitute for you know if we want to change California and put it back on track. Um, and, and, you know, make the state the golden state that we all believe in, where it's a land of opportunity and upward mobility and 
and all the things that we know it should be, there really isn't an alternative than electing more Republicans. I mean, there's been all these people that have said, well, if you work with, you know, inverted commas, moderate Democrats or, you know, yeah. and, and a lot of the business organizations, that's been their strategy to try mm -hmm. and fund, um, you know, the so-called moderate Democrat in a race. Uh, no, I mean, where's that got us? It's just gone further and further left. And actually, exactly. people, then the, the reason for all of that strategy is, well, you'll never get Republicans elected. And I say, well, actually, if you look at things like ballot initiative outcomes, the whatever term you want to use, the Republican position, the conservative position, the right of center position keeps winning when it yes. comes to these ballot initiatives. And I'm sure if it gets on the ballot, this proposition, this Prop 47 one will pass. I mean, you know, the overturning of it, just yeah. as we saw the, you know, the, the, the more conservative position on racial preferences and, and, and right. so on, you know, what, one after another in recent years, that's the way it's gone with these ballot initiatives. Yeah, it is. And ballot initiatives are the voters way of actually speaking when the legislature won't speak for the voters. And that seems to continue happening uh, in this state. That's why I focus on the grassroots. I mean, first we saw this grassroots thing happening in California when um, parents were so frustrated with their schools and their school boards. And so they got engaged, not even re-engaged, but probably for the first time they got engaged on what was happening. And now we're seeing it also with the crime issue because nobody is exempted from the crime. I don't, you know, I don't care how rich and famous you are. We keep yeah. reading about jackings happening with all kinds of people. So that's why I think I totally agree with you, Steve. This, I think this has a huge chance of passing. And 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 what about the other, I mean, what just looking looking more broadly at the politics of this year, obviously, you know, the, the presidential race is, is going to take up a lot of oxygen, but this is California corner. So let's look at the California races. I mean, what are you, what are you looking at? What are you, I mean, a lot of attention on the Senate race. Um, oh yeah. We'll know pretty soon who's made it to the top two. And then mm -hmm. you've got the legislate. We've, we've got an assembly assemblywoman on just after this, um, who's got a tough race to hold mm -hmm. on to her seat as a Republican yep. that's been redistricting. What I mean, yeah. what do you see happening? I think the change we're going to see initially is at the local level. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see more, you know, city council races, maybe some county supervisors, if termed out legislators don't keep trying to take up those spots. Um, but I think that's where the, the total grassroots change begins. Um, I'm even seeing it here in Sacramento. While I don't have any Republicans running for office in Sacramento, I am seeing common sense people trying to reach out to more people. And I right. so that's what we're probably going to see more. Um, the assembly races and the Senate and the state Senate races are particularly tough because the special interest groups in the state pretty much are buying who they want in those offices to then do their wow. bidding. It's that bad. Um, it's special interests are running everything in our legislature right now. And so do you mean by that on, well, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, I hear that and I think, well, on the left, it's the unions, but it's not just the unions on the left, is it? No, it's it's the unions, but it's also um, a ton of these NGOs that are being funded by these very dubious um, nonprofits and philanthropic groups that used to be philanthropic, but now they're all political. And so they're creating PACs and the PACs are, you know, providing money for, you know, and it's the, the dark money we always hear about. Um, they're they're handpicking candidates who will do their bidding. And I think that's also why we see 
um, in our in our state legislature, so many people who've never done anything else in their life except maybe they were a legislative staffer or they worked for some one of these NGOs or something, and suddenly they're a lawmaker and they don't yeah. know a thing about California politics. But by golly, they're going to toe the the party line. Yeah, I mean, often you get them. The aid sort of inherits almost the yes the the the, the seat from their boss, their former, and yeah. you just think, what what is this? Right, I know it's that that kind of disturbs me. We've seen it on both sides of the aisle, and um, you know, I am I am partial to the Republicans who do it when they do it um, because at least they understand what the California constitution is, what the US constitution is. They pay attention to politics and they supposedly, I mean, they are there to do the the business of the people, but yes. we don't see that on the other side of the aisle. And so, I mean, the, how do, I mean, you, you cover it and that's why everyone needs to read California globe, but um, it's interesting, isn't it? How, little attention any of this gets and the dysfunction in Sacramento from the media that are constantly going on about, um, you know, threats to our democracy and, yeah. you know, the Republicans in controlling the House, they, you know, they don't know how to govern and all this kind of stuff and corruption. And yet, you know, it's right under their nose in the biggest state in the union, yeah. um, fifth biggest economy in the world, we keep saying, mm. and it's run in this incredibly corrupt way. It is. It's, and it's it's particularly bad right now. Um, as I said, I've kind of jokingly said, uh, you know, to others, it's, it's as if the stupid people are running everything right now in our state, in our country, because these are not people who've ever signed the front of a paycheck. They've yes. not they've not had any sort of business. They've not even worked for a private business owner in most cases. Yeah. And so they're very, very out of touch with what makes Sammy run in the state. They're very out of touch th with the fact that most of the, the majority of businesses in California are small businesses. And every law they put through damages those, they hurt those small business owners. Uh, and, and frankly, they're, they're killing the goose that lays the golden egg in the state. It's, um, I mean, I'm so glad you brought that up. Just the other day, um, I had a meeting preparing so we've got these policy papers coming out um, through my organization, Golden Together. The first one will be any, you know, within the next week or so on forest management and um, uh, wildfires and reviving our timber industry. And, ah. and a mutual friend of ours, Ed Ring, is is working on all of these with me. He's fantastic. Good. Um, yeah. And so that's the first one. And then the third one, actually, is going to be on the business climate in California. Ah. And we have, I mean, again, as I say all the time, in California, it seems we're bottom of every list that you want to be top of and top yes. of every list you want to be bottom of. So we have, the, you know, the highest taxes, but the worst poverty and, you know, et cetera. And one right. of the things where we're bottom of the list, it just was, you know, it, 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 another survey confirmed that just a couple of weeks ago, the worst business climate of Correct. all 50 states, right? For the second yeah, year in a row. And and so we're doing a paper on the business climate. And and I had, you know, in preparing it, we had a call with uh, a few entrepreneurs Um you know, who run small and medium-sized businesses. And I just wanted them to download in, in specific detail how, how it, you know, what are the things that they have to deal with. And it's so, I mean, I thought I knew about much of this stuff and I follow it. It was so horrifying. I mean, you have someone who owns a restaurant. He says, I'm spending two to three hours per day on compliance paperwork. Yes. Running a, one restaurant, you yes. know, and, and, and then the, 
And then the way this, you know, some of these rules and laws, you know, then impact the rates you pay for insurance or, yes. the, or the fact you can't even get insurance because of yeah. some of the policies they've put in place in relation to fire risk or whatever. And it's just, you just, at the end of the meeting, I thought, I don't understand how anyone runs a business in California at all. Right. Or why they'd want to. Um, some years ago, Steve, I did a, an experiment on my own and then wrote about it. And I pretended I was opening up a small manufacturing business. It was going to be within the city of Sacramento, in Sacramento County. There would be some ink involved with it. So I had to talk to the Department of Toxics. 23 agencies later, <gasps> and it was looking like it was going to take almost three years to even get through the permitting process. And who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars, there's no way I could have opened that business. It's just, it's infuriating. And yes. and this is, and, and it comes back to what you said earlier, which is that the people who are pushing all this through, they genuinely have no idea. So it all no. sounds good on paper. Uh, well, maybe it doesn't even sound good, but whatever, you know, there's a sort of logic <laughs> to it, you could say, but then they don't, you know, appreciate how what it actually does in terms of the impact on daily life of, of you, this avalanche of stuff that you have to comply with. It doesn't happen in other states. Yeah. Um, at California Globe, uh, since about 2019, I did this series on leaving California and I would talk to yes. business owners and individuals just who left. Everyone pretty much said the same thing. You know, of course, it, it was the political environment, which just became untenable for some, but it was the business environment for these small business owners. And I talked to people who moved their business to North Carolina, to Florida, to Texas, to Nevada, to Arizona, and every one of them said the same thing. They almost could have absorbed the cost of doing business in California, except for the regulatory cost and the harassment they got from the regulating agencies in their businesses. And that that is what I talk about so much when I when I look at these lawmakers who are pushing these bills that are so, on the face of them, you can tell they're going to harm businesses. Yes. And what's so disturbing, too, is they are warned. There are Republicans who in the committee hearings bring in businesses to tell, here's what's going to happen to me. Yeah. And do you know what these Democrat lawmakers do? They get up off the dais and they leave the committee hearing or they, you know, they they start Sorry. texting on their phone and and to make it even worse. And then I see members yeah. of the media closing their laptops and they won't report on it because they can't be bothered. That's an amazing insight. That is such a valuable little vignette there. They're not interested. It's an incredibly important thing you've just said there. They don't they genuinely don't care. No, they don't. That's really, I mean, I want to say shocking, but I guess it's not shocking, but it's, yeah. it's appalling. It is. I, I heard somebody recently, and I don't remember who it was, I wish I could remember, who said, hey, get over yourself. Politicians hate you people. They hate you little people. They hate you voters. They hate you small business voters. They hate you moms who organize and come tell them how horrible this or that is going to be for your kids. They don't want to hear from you. And I really really believe it now yeah that's right it's interesting i always try and and have you know have good faith arguments right and say well you know we agree about the ends but you know we have a disagreement about how we get there mm -hmm. um and so we shouldn't question each other's motives we all want the same thing in the end whatever but actually increasingly you look at some of this stuff and you think no we really don't want the same thing like what you want 
you know, on, on and it, you can, it's apparent that so many of these issues is this completely distorted, very ideologically driven worldview that yes. is not about a, a pragmatic way of improving people's lives and addressing, fixing problems and, 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 right. and achieving genuine progress, right? Which is what we all want. And they call themselves progressive. It's not about that. It's about a yes. very weird kind of extremist ideology which doesn't really connect to the real world at all. It's just how you, you frame it because it's coming out of the academic world and so on. Exactly. And you just said a mouthful because whether, you know, some of these people profess these dystopian ideals, which are terrifying, um, whether they're the defund the police people. I mean, we have a communist, an avowed communist on the Sacramento City Council who wants to get rid of every cop in the city and she may get reelected. You have... Some of the ideals coming out of academia where they're so ignorant to the real world and what their purpose is supposed to be as, as a member of a council or a body who works in government. I mean, they're supposed to provide us the services we can't provide ourselves and nothing more. Um, roads, bridges, you know, all the infrastructure, public safety. Um, OK, the public education system. Absolutely. It used to be fantastic here in the state. But they've gone so far beyond that now. They're trying to force things on us that we don't want them to do. Yes, None I know, but they, they, they obviously can't do that or they won't do that. So instead, exactly. it's this endless fiddling around. This is what drives me crazy. You have, like, you know, the potholes in the roads and the schools are a disaster. We have the yeah. lowest literacy, just yes. as a matter of fact, the lowest literacy rate in the country. And, you know, on and on, we talked about crime, et cetera. So all these basic things. So if exactly as you say, you know, what's the basic expectation? The government provides safety and security and a platform right. for opportunity so you can make your own way. And education is a big part of that. They're totally failing on education. It's yes. an absolute crisis. About that California has the worst public schools judged by results in the I entire know. country. It's a total disgrace. And oh, yet they're doing nothing to improve that. In fact, make, they're making it worse. And meanwhile, yeah. fiddling around with, you know, to, <laughs> yes, trying to stop our cars from going at a certain speed and what we can cook our meals on. Yes. Yeah, it's it's and that's why I say and forgive me again that the stupid people are running everything because they're not interested in governing, which is all we want them to do. We want yeah. them to listen to us from our districts and our communities and take back our concerns to the assembly and the Senate. And they're not at all interested in that. And so we're getting things like reparations and, as you say, you know, a gas stove ban. Yeah. And on and on. I mean, that's the and the other part part of it is that there's just so many bills. I mean, that's the other thing. It's just so right. much comes out of Sacramento because there's not enough scrutiny. That's why what you do is so important. Um, and I think it's having an effect. I, I don't know. I, I feel like people are breaking up to some of this stuff. I really do have hope that we're going to get the change that we need. Um, so just yeah. remind everyone where they can follow you and California Globe and all that stuff. Sure. Um, California Globe is online. It's at californiaglobe.com and we don't have a paywall so you can read it every day, five times a day. We also have an email that we send out capturing kind of the top stories of the week and we only do it once a week on Friday. So if you give me your email address online, we can do that. And then I'm uh, at Katie Sex Citizen on Twitter and you can follow California Globe on Twitter, Facebook, Truth Social, everywhere else also. <laughs> Fantastic. Katie, brilliant to see you. Uh, thank you for what you do. And uh, we'll see you very soon. Thank you, Steve. All right. Joining us for Candidate Corner this week, Laurie Davis, uh, who is in the California State Assembly, um, fighting a very, very important race 
and she represents it's got to be one of the most beautiful i'm sure she'll say it's the most beautiful uh district in the entire country never mind california it's a part of our state that i'm getting to learn very well in uh, south orange county the north of san diego wonderful places like dana point and san clemente and san juan capistrano just beautiful um and of course they're absolutely vital uh, military base we're so pr proud of the marine base camp pendleton um so lots going on in your district laurie but just tell us tell us a little bit about what you've been working on in the assembly what have been your priorities what's Certainly. top of your agenda well yes and it is the most beautiful district in the united states i i just have to reiterate that um it's it's incredible but um you know what we just started session again up here in january and um we're getting our bills introduced, uh, and then we will go into co committees, obviously trying to get them passed. But, you know, I think it's the, the number three. There's three uh, major issues right now in this state, mm -hmm. which continues, you know, affordability. You're watching people move out of California, yes. you know, by the thousands. Also, um, homelessness and safety. I mean, you know, safety and crime, retail theft, you name it. Those are the three major issues. And, you know, and they're serious. Let's 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 sort of start at the last one. I'm interested in how you you see the safety and crime issue from, from the state level, because, of course, so much as that of that is handled, you know, at the local level, at the city or county level with sheriffs and, you know, police chiefs and DAs for counties and so on. It's very decentralized. So what what what's your um, angle on all of that on crime and safety? Well, I think the um, the hardest part is for law enforcement at a local and county level is that they're, you know, they're handcuffed to what they can do. Mm -hmm. And if you go back in 2014, um, you know, we had Prop 47, then we had Prop 57, which basically has, you know, allowed criminals to run wild and um, and there's no accountability or no punishment. And so there's not much they can do. And so, you know, what we're really working hard now to slowly undo prop 47 and it's hard because a constitutional ballot measure that was voted on by the people so up here we're just trying to take it dissect it and it's amazing how many um avenues that it has actually affected um you know just that one proposition and, and the voters had no idea what they were voting unfortunately then so let's take them piece by piece dissect it in your words so prop 47 that's the one that's that's become notorious but is that that's the one that includes the uh, basically legalizing theft uh, under $950 a day. Is that correct? Exactly. I think it was like 250 in the past uh, that would then be considered a felon after that. And it's $950. And we knew as soon as we saw this, how bad this was going to be. I work with law enforcement to you know try to get out and educate people on this proposition. And sure enough, you know, we're looking at 10 years later and um, again, there's no punishment. $950, we literally had people walking into Walmarts and um, with calculators and sitting there and adding up what they were stealing and knowing that if they got caught, they could say Prop 47, sorry, $947, you know, you got to let me go. Yeah. Uh, and to watch people now, they don't even care. And now you've got the laws that, um, you know, the Democrats have pushed saying you can't do anything to stop them, no matter how much they're taking. That's right. Just on that, let's let's just because there's something happened on that recently where Gavin Newsom was talking about he was in Target. Right. And he saw someone walk out with hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. And he said, why aren't you doing anything about it? Um, <laughs> and they and the person blamed the government said it's the governor. 
And of course, he, they didn't recognize him. He is the governor. And then he and then he was sort of, you know, complaining about that attitude. But they've just passed this law, haven't they? Which literally makes it illegal to stop someone. Isn't that right? Well, not only did they pass this law, which, of course, um, I opposed, he signed it. So the fact that he didn't realize, of course, that's what happens when you pass, you know, you sign 800, 900 bills. Exactly. It's probably easy to forget, but he literally signed that one. And that's how we all feel as we're watching people take, you know, shoplift and we're watching our businesses go out. It's like, why do we allow them? And so, you know, yeah, that was his um, signature on that bill. And, and, and the thing about this, I mean, it, it all just goes together because they, so the, the $950 thing, that is, it downgraded anything to a misdemeanor rather than a felony, right. right? And then you have DAs like George Gascon in LA who says, well, we're not, basically, we're not prosecuting misdemeanors. So it's the interaction, isn't it, of that state um, law and then the local implementation of it. So what, because there's also a ballot initiative gathering signatures to overturn 47, isn't there? There is. And, um, you know, we're really hoping that we can be pushing that. But, you know, we're not going to take it for granted. So right now we're trying to, again, you know, I've got bills um, in regards to retail theft. You've got bills going, being introduced about cargo theft. Um, you know, it's one of the things I've been working with um, our, uh, you probably know um, DA Todd Spitzer out of Orange County. Oh, yes, he's great. Um, yeah. He does a fantastic job and he follows the law. Um, but, you know, we're finding that a lot of the um, uh, drug cartel are using uh, juveniles to actually do the dirty work because yes. there's, it's a slap on the hand, even if that. So um, we introduced a law that basically would, if you're using uh, more than two juveniles um, and you are caught as an adult, um, it now becomes um, an enhancement. And so, and, and is this going to be blocked by the Democrats? So many of these sensible um, bills, they, they are, and is it the public safety committee? They just sort of block them. Well, you know, it, exactly. We do have a different public safety committee um, with the new speaker. Um, they have new committee members. I feel positive and hopeful that this year, I think we have um, much more common sense uh, on mm -hmm. that a balance on there to actually see what's happening. And, um, you know, and I think it's really important because when we had um, last year uh, SB 14, which was um, uh, making it a felon if you um, sex traffic a, a minor, yes. And five um, of the seven, which were with the Democrats, voted against this. You know, the pressure was put on, which was really important. Yeah. Um, and people, their faces, they were accountable for once. There were actually faces to those votes. And we were able to get them to go back into the committee the next day. Um, and three out of the five voted to support it, which means we were able to get it on the floor. And we got it um, passed, and then the governor signed that into law. So now it is a felony. Uh, that yeah. is interesting. That it, it it reminds me a little bit of the um, attitude you're seeing from the at the federal level, the Biden administration in relation to the border. After years of you know gaslighting everyone and saying, "Oh well, yeah, the border's secure, the border's secure," you know they're finally accepting it's not. And, and and saying that they want to do something about it. And it feels a little bit like that in relation to crime in California, where after years of saying, oh, this is all just Fox News and it's all just a few viral clips, but actually everything's fine. Um, it seems like they are actually realizing that it's, I guess, because it's hurting them politically somehow. And they certainly don't like the reputation that it's created for California across the country. 
with, without a doubt. And I think that was it until there were faces behind those votes. And I think that's probably one of the most frustrating things is people are really busy in life. But the problem is, is when they turn on their TV, they're looking at national news and they have no idea that 90 percent of what affects their daily life from their finances to their kids education to their safety to their health is voted on up at sacramento yes and so you know unless things are going good but as soon as something starts hitting their you know their block and and they don't feel safe to go to the mall or you know they can't afford to put gas in their tank um they start realizing where those decisions are being made but yeah. sadly again it's taken a long time but i really believe that the um uh, the pendulum is starting to swing, but we have to make the people accountable up here. So making sure Californians are informed of who's doing what up here makes a huge difference. And I think that's why this election is so important. And it's interesting to, to hear you speak. It's making me realize that actually it's very important also, also to push back on the idea that you hear some people say, which is, well, what's the point? in you know voting republican or getting involved in politics even because the democrats have such a big majority in the legislature that's true um and so what can the De republicans do anyway well actually you can achieve things because because even you know if you're focused you can shame them into action and that's what happened with that shannon grove bill uh, we had shannon on often to talk about it on on, on certain human trafficking Right. And it sounds like with your crime work, it could you could end up in a very similar situation where even though you are in the minority, you substantially, you could actually make things happen. Well, you know, we can. And I think um, people underestimate what we can actually do up here. Uh, in 2020, I was elected. And again, you know, there's 80 assembly members and there were that year 19 um, Republicans. However, I got my first term 15 out of 15 bills signed into law unanimously across um, the floor, across the aisle, and um, signed by the governor because they were good common sense laws. Interesting. And some, you know, and something I've always learned, I sat on city council for eight years, uh, served as a mayor. And when you're on that local level, you know what? It's only one group. You know what? You serve the entire community. Right. I always say, leave your party and your politics outside the door and let's talk policy. And that's what I was able to do. And they're good common sense bills. So you can definitely get a lot done. But the other thing we can do, even though we may be a minority, is they can't stop us from letting people know what is happening out here and up here. And so that's my job. And I know for us as a party, it's making sure people know, you know, the bills that are coming to the committee so that I'm not going to tell them how to vote. I think I can really tell them exactly how that vote or that bill is going to affect them. Mm -hmm. They can make up their own decision. It's just making sure they have the right information. Amazing. That's, I mean, it's great. It's very important. This, you know, this general point you're making about, about how you can make change happen. Um, yeah. Let's, let's talk about the, the other, one of the other three issues you mentioned, affordability. Um, what are you doing there? I can tell you that um, since 2022, we have um, asked for a gas tax relief. Uh, you look at um, right now, I think that's probably something that affects everyone. And when you talk about affordability, I mean, for the last few years, you're seeing gas up to $6 a gallon. Yeah. And I'm getting calls from, you know, your um, your average um, Joe that's working in construction saying, I can't afford to drive to where I'm working and then drive three hours back so they're sleeping in their truck overnight. Or they're like, do I put a gallon of milk on the table or do I put a gallon of gas? And so um, I was one yeah. of the co-authors that stood there. And yet, 
you know, you know, the supermajority voted not to even hear the bill. But we're looking at things to be able to help businesses, tax credits, a tax credits for renters because the rent is so high. We continue to do that. And that's something that we're going to be working extremely hard on this year. That's really, I mean, housing costs are a massive issue. I've been working on that myself in relation to right. the, the, the availability of housing. What, tell us about, but rent's a huge thing. You know, so many people rent now and the, and the rents are astronomical and it's like half your budget, half your income, uh, way more than it should be. So tell us a little bit more about rent and, and what, what might be possible there. I think one of the things we're looking at is um, kind of like a renter's tax credit something that they can write off um, almost like you kind of do your property taxes when you have that opportunity. But I think the other option is, you know, we need housing. However, when they say the word affordable housing, it's it's basically an oxymoron. The bottom line is how do we actually have affordable housing? That means we have to really streamline CEQA. Um, The cost of materials, the cost of labor, all of that goes into it. And so we can actually do it. Our housing costs are like, 800,000 per unit and where you look at other states and it's more like 200. So it's definitely um, possible, but also I think it's important that when we start building, we have to really, um, we have to look at how we're building. And I think we need to have workforce housing as well. You Mm -hmm. know, you want people to be able to afford to um, live and work in your community, but if they can't afford it, they're not going to be there. So we need to work with workforce housing and make sure that our teachers, um, our, uh, you know, our, our firemen, our police, um, uh, our tradesmen, they can afford to live where they are. And well, again, it's not easy enough to do is just do they have, um, you know, do they have the will to do it? I mean, this is what's so infuriating about the whole housing issue, because as you say, they have all these schemes to do affordable housing. They call it affordable housing. But actually what they don't do ever is address the causes of the massive increase in price. So they don't deal with the regulations and the litigation and all these things that force up the price of housing. They say, oh, it's really expensive. We have the highest housing costs in America, which is true. So then what they do is like is, is get put more taxpayer money into subsidies for affordable housing. So it, it makes it even less affordable here because taxes are going up rather than actually addressing the causes of the of the of the price increase it is just so completely backwards um can i turn to the actual politics of your race and um and how that's looking um what what how is that district i mean people might think well that sounds like a pretty republican area they think of orange county san diego as the more republican parts of the state potentially um although you're on the coast so maybe not i don't know tell us tell us how it's looking absolutely you know uh in 2020 um, I had a different district and um, I was, um, you know, one of the safest seats in California. They redistrict after the census in 2022. And now I am the most targeted seat uh, in the state. Wow. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's but, you know, I take this as an opportunity because it is diverse. And for me, there's um, good in every city. And for me, I'm put up here to actually listen, find out what the concerns are and solve the problem. So I take that challenge on wholeheartedly, and you know that's important. But um, yeah, I can tell you that you know my opponent um, has the same opponent has run against me three times. Uh, he sits on city council in um, uh, San Clemente, and honestly, um, you know the only thing he's really done is given himself a pay raise, and um, you know, and you know took a trip to D.C. on the taxpayers. So um, he's going to be running against me for the fourth time again, and again, you know. I represent everybody and people have to remember that is I may have a district, 
But when I vote, I'm voting for the entire state. So mm -hmm. I always talk about policy and everybody's voice matters. You know, I work with Democrats, independents, Republicans, because it's about them and one size doesn't fit all. And we have to remember that. So I think it's, you know, really important. Plus I've been able to um, sit on the board for the state allocation uh, funding. I was able to get over $20 million um, in the last two years to our schools. So there's a lot one can do um, mm -hmm. even as a minority, but I just think that the people deserve to be represented as a whole. And, um, you know, and it's kind of like when I'm, you know, when you're, when you're walking, they're putting $2 million against me is the reward chest. And wow. it's, it's pretty sad. Um, but you know what, they put money into mailers and um, billboards. Um, and for me, I believe in the grassroots theory. I am a walker. I believe on knocking on every door because mm -hmm. every voice does matter, you know, and I'm making calls to voters so that I can actually hear what their concerns are. So, you know, it's I'm committed to those that I represent. Fantastic. What about the um, so just tell us in terms of the district, how much of your old district is in the new in terms of the percentage? Forty five percent. Oh, so it's really a big change. And yes. so what are they? Is it now considered to be, you know, they give them these ratings, you know, like in terms of the voter registration, they call sure. it D plus five or R plus one or whatever. It's, what, like what, what plus, it's like a D plus one to three. Okay, so so you're you know you're you're it's, it would be against the odds if you if you won your race. But I did in 2022, and I think um, that's right. what really proves is okay. you know what um, voters want someone that's actually listening to them, that's solving problems, um, that are out there, you know, um, and actually um, you know doing beneficial bills, not raising you know putting bills out there that are going to um, you know raise their taxes. And so um, I think that's what's best is uh, they feel that I do represent them as a whole, because, again, it's about policy. It's not about party. And I think the tide's changing right across the state, actually. Even, you know, you, I talk to Democrats and independents all the time. And they say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Democrat. But honestly, we've got to change direction. This is not working. Um, well, you talk about that and that's just it. Balance. No party should have a super majority. Yes. The whole idea is that we can come together to the table. And I think the best policy is when you've got to hash it out and really look at how it's going to affect what are the repercussions the problem is the question isn't answered up here when they do a bill it's what are you know what are the repercussions you know you're so consistent in the way you put that out there that you know you all you're interested in is like pragmatic common sense solutions to solving problems i think that is so people are so desperate for that so if you can get that message out um just last question you is it just you and your de democrat put is, is the is the primary basically going to be the same as the um, yes. General, pretty much. Yes, my my opponent um, and myself. So it's the two of us, just like it was in 2020 and 2022 coming in, pretty much. Um, so, yes, it is. And um, you know, I, I want to thank you so much. And um, like I said, is when I say this, and I I talk to those that I represent. You know, I also thank them for letting me serve them. Um, and, um, you know, because it really is, it's a privilege and it's an honor. And uh, if anyone wants more information, they can uh, go to um, Davies for FORCA.com. And it's Davies with an IE, right? Correct. That's right. Fantastic. I was going to I was going to ask you to do that, Laurie, but you did it anyway. So that's fantastic. Um, good luck out there. It was a great, uh, great pleasure talking to you today. And thank you for what you do for us. Oh, thank you so much, Steve. Appreciate it. Have a great day. All right, here's something I want to get off my chest, everybody. Did you see the Senate hearing last week with the big tech uh, CEOs that were wheeled in uh, to have their... It feels like um, it's definitely a regular berating from the legislators. 
up in uh, up in Congress in Washington. Um, I don't know if it's annual or not, but it feels like a pretty you know frequent occurrence now. They wheel them in, and the senators yell at them, and nothing happens. I mean, that's ba- that's basically the um, the cycle that we seem to be in, and it's just so preposterous. And, and actually, this one particularly annoyed me because the senators were so rude, so incredibly rude to these CEOs. They obviously have no clue what they're talking. You know, they they read out these questions. Um, and points that have been written for them clearly by their staffs. And they yell in the most sort of, a you know, outrageous way, incredibly rude way to these CEOs. And of course, you know, we, we can criticize big tech and so on. And, and I have done over various things, in, in, in particular, recently, the censorship that they did. Remember that they did the censorship at the behest of the government in terms of the FBI. And we don't need to go back over that whole story and, 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 and political appointees and so on, and then the Biden administration in relation to COVID, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we, they, yes, there's lots to criticize about big tech, but these these rants that you get from the senators are so kind of ignorant and superficial, and then they never do anything. So they get all kind of, you know, hot and bothered about, you know, you're kill, you've got blood on your hands and all this stuff. Um, so if they feel that strongly about it, well, they actually do something about it, but they never do anything about it. And nothing ever changes. And then they come back in again the next year, same performance all over again. It's a total charade, and it, and it's an embarrassing one. Um, here's the thing, though. This particular one really relates to a subject that's very close to my heart. I speak about it all the time, which is the um, impact of social media platforms in particular. This wasn't sort of tech generally. This was social media platforms. So you had um, Mark Zuckerberg there for Meta, and obviously with Instagram, and it was the main sort of focus. Um, and you had the guy from Discord and um, TikTok, can't remember. Oh, X. Linda Yaccarino was there from X. By the way, just as an aside, one of the interesting, isn't it interesting um, that you had new CEOs there, as it were, who haven't been there for the previous yelling sessions, um, particularly the guy, the CEO of Discord, and then TikTok. TikTok's been there before. It's the first time I recall seeing the Discord guy there. And it tells you something very interesting about technology. So you've got a lot of argument that says, well, these text platforms are monopolies and they need to be broken up and so on. And they are, the counter argument often is, well, actually, it's a very dynamic industry and the barriers to entry are actually pretty low. And you can have new entrants come in and disrupt the existing businesses. And by the way, the fact that you've got TikTok there that so quickly turned into this massive behemoth of social media and Discord as well really does prove that point, you know, that, that actually there is there are ways for new entrants to break into these markets. Anyway, that's an aside. So you've got the social media platforms there and they're being yelled at over what they do in relation to children. And I feel incredibly strongly about that, as you know. But here's the point that these idiot senators missed. It's not the platforms that, that are the primary problem here. It's the phones that enable kids to access these things unsupervised. That's the problem. Why are kids having smartphones where they can access all this stuff aged you know, five, six, seven, eight? That's the problem. If you're worried about kids seeing violent porn at an early age, don't give them a phone. I mean, that's the issue here. And the truth is that you can have these platforms as they, you know, you know, they they claim and who's, you know, I'm sure they're not, you know, they're telling the truth. They put in um, protections and controls for parents and all the rest. We've heard that for years. But as I've always said, kids can get around them. They always can get around them. And so if you really want to do something about this genuine problem, and they list all the problems and access to sexual, sexually explicit material at an early age and things that cause, um, you know, me- mental health problems, etc. 
right? These are all real things. I, I absolutely share the concern. I've been writing about it for years, by the way, before any of these senators took a bloody interest in it. I mean, you look back what I wrote in my book, More Human, in 2015. So I've got a long track record of focusing on this problem. And right from the word go, I argued and I still maintain that the way to deal with these problems of, of technology harming children is not to give them the primary device which enables them to access it. And that is their smartphone. Okay, they can have dumb phones and flip phones or whatever you, if you really need to keep in touch that much. I mean, we never had. I mean, I hear people say, well, if you don't, if kids don't have smartphones, how are they going to call their parents while they're at school? What are you talking about? Why do they need to call their parents when they're at school? I never had a phone to call my parents when I was at school. The world was fine. It's ridiculous. So most of these arguments about why kids have to have phones are ridiculous. If they, you know, but, but okay, if you want to give them a phone, fine. Give them a phone that doesn't have the internet. That's the problem, the mobile internet, where you can, they can access all this stuff unsupervised. Now, the next point is, and I've made this argument so many times, so I'm blue in the face, that actually you, it's very difficult for everyone to say, oh, it's the parents' responsibility. The parents just need to be tougher and not give their kids phones. It's the parent, parents' responsibility. We shouldn't be in the business of banning things, which is a ridiculous argument. We ban things the whole time. We you have age limits. I mean, if you don't want to use the word ban, use age limits, right? We have age limits for sex and drugs and smoking and alcohol and driving, right? You give You have an age limit on driving. You don't let five-year-old kids drive a car on the road? Of course you don't. Or eight-year-olds, you have an age limit. And just in the same way, we should have an age limit for smartphones. And that is how individual parents can do what they all want to do. Because when the kid says, I've, I, you've got to give me a phone, all my friends have a phone, that's a really tough argument. You don't want your kid to be left out. And actually, if it is the way that social lives are conducted, then they're missing out. And that's a big part of growing up. So it's much easier and better for everyone if there's just a society-wide expectation that you don't have a smartphone until you're, let's say, 16. That's the actual answer. And these idiot senators who are having these ridiculous hearings, totally missing the point. The answer is to have an age limit for smartphones. That is the way you solve this problem. And it's just so frustrating that they can't see it. By the way, we are moving in that direction. When I first settled this years ago, um, everyone said, oh, you've got to be crazy and whatever. Now you're actually seeing it. So in many uh, school districts around the country, um, you're actually now seeing schools um, banning the use of smartphones during school hours. Some some of them in the classroom. In Florida now, I've noticed some school districts banning it on in the entirety of time kids are in school. They all report the same thing. Better attendance in class, less bullying, better social relationships. Everything's better. So can these senators stop these pantomime hearings and actually focus on the one thing that would help solve this problem and is to bring in age limits for smartphones? All right, there we are. That is our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, make sure you follow The Steve Hilton Show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends and family to listen to us. I hear a lot of people, when I go around traveling in California, they say, oh, we miss your show, Steve. We miss your show. I say, well, how many people here actually are subscribers to the steve hilton show like a few hands go up so there you are you can catch me every week on this show so please tell everyone uh that that's where i'm available and we look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of the steve hilton show